It's time to warn your sons and daughters the aliens are coming to take our water. Thomas Dolby writes a TED Talk tune. Howard the Ducks on pay-per-view. Weird Al's now a road trip savior. William Shatner's a space invader. Ringtone ditties, Oracula flick. Does your song need to rock? Just add a theremin. It's time for our show to start now. Slime creatures from outer space on Weird Pals. Well, hi there, everybody. Uh, my name is Tim. My name is Andy. And we're back with Weird Pals, and we have a special guest today. Sure, he's like rubbing elbows with bigwigs at NASA for his free time. And sure, he teaches your children how to calculate, I don't know, the distance between the sun and the earth. Or maybe like uh, uh, pop quiz, what are the moons of Jupiter? But most importantly... He's a lifelong fan of Weird Al. Everyone, it's my lovely co-worker, uh, Jeff Adkins. Hello, Jeff. Hello. Woo. Glad to be here. Jeff, it was on the wonderful world of uh, Facebook that I caught some meme or uh, that you had posted Weird Al-wise, and then I was like, oh my gosh, is one of my co-workers also very cool like I am? Let me ask. <laughs> and the answer was absolutely. It seems like Weird Al is right up your alley. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember... Uh... I was in college when he first started making music and one of my friends said, you've got to listen to this guy. He records it in his bathroom. <laughs> yeah. I think it was one of his first songs, you know, I mean, it was back when he was on Dr. Demento. And um, anyway, so since that point, whenever I had access to being able to, to buy his music, I would just, you know, buy his, his first, his cassettes and then his CDs and then his downloads. So, and I've been to uh, a Weird Al concert once. So I got to see him live once. That was pretty cool. Nice. What we're big. He puts on a good show. I gotta say. Oh yeah. Puts on the best shows. Uh, we're big Weird Al dorks. We are curious. Which tour iteration did you get to see Weird Al in? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the name of it, but it would have been about probably something like twenty years ago or more. Ooh. I know he did. Uh, it was probably not too long Is after that he Poodle did. Hat? Uh, That'd be Poodle Hat era, twenty years ago. Yeah. So he did like, the, um, he would have done like just before White and Nerdy. So it depends on if White and Nerdy existed or not. No, it was before White yeah, and Nerdy. It could have been Poodle Hat, which is cool because I saw him on that tour also. He came to Spokane and he did, um, uh, I remember he did Dog Eat Dog, which was like a weird um, B-side off an album that was like 20 years old at that time and uh dressed up like david byrne and i was like as a child i was like i don't get it but i <laughs> like it was it like full-on just big suit with the big yeah, it was shoulders the stop stop making sense suit. yeah 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 all right so you have passed the test you're allowed to be a guest host for our episode. <laughs> uh andy what on what song are we on now for this here episode uh, we are doing off Dare to be Stupid, because we're still doing that album, because that's the whole point of this season. Yeah. Uh, slime Creatures from Outer Space. Oh, my P Pretty goodness. telling title right there. Yeah. Yeah, the, the bit isn't hidden at all in this one. No. It's... You know, there's some there's some songs where I got the CD as a child, and I look at the, at the, at the song listing, and I'm like, I wonder what these songs are parodying, or I wonder what they might be about, because they're, like, sort of obfuscating the joke. But not this one. This one tells you exactly what's going on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'm going to tell us about what on earth this song might have been inspired by. Andy's going to tell us a little bit about Weird Al. Jeff's going to bring his space knowledge to the table. Uh, gentlemen, are you ready? Uh, yes. 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 Okay, excellent. Jeff was going to go with the nonverbal thumbs up, but then remembered audio responses <laughs> are essential. Yeah. All right. <laughs> let's do it. Um, pop quiz, anyone, uh, without, uh, looking, does anyone know what this song might have been inspired by? It's like the most eighties artist that you could even think of. And I didn't know this person's name, uh, but I definitely know their hit one hit wonder. Well, I already know from my research, so that's oh, unfair. No. Oh, I don't know off the top of my head, but I know it's a song that was briefly popular. 
So um, the, yeah, the song that this might be most based off of, I had never heard of before, but I know this person's a hit single that came out before this inspiration. We're going to talk about Thomas Dolby, the gentleman who did in fact create the song She Blinded Me With Science, mm-hmm. which is like, if you were to like take all of the pop culture of the early 80s and, and sort of like pressure it into like from sand to diamond you would open up your hands and thomas dolby would be sitting a little thomas dolby would be sitting there and uh i was delighted to listen to a lot of thomas dolby uh for this episode Thomas Dolby was making music in the 80s. His first record came out in 1982. It's an album called The Golden Age of Wireless, which um, his bit is like he was like a pioneer of electronic music where he was like simply like taking as many electronical computers and... Electronical? Electronical computers, you know, not the analog, not analog computers. Not analog, analogical. This was past the days where you had to put in punch cards, like in the <laughs> 1910s for computers. It was past, it was past that bit. Um, I'm sorry, but, I'm just making, I'm just making fun of you for saying electronical. That's great. Uh, this, Raise I, your hand if you've ever used punch cards. Uh, no, not nope. Uh, Jeff's the only one raising his hand in, once. <laughs> once. Once. That's exciting. These were these were computers attached to musical instruments, and then he would like start helping like invent different kinds of instruments. And there's a there's a video I watched of him like walking through. He had this interesting one man show, and it was like the whole stage was filled with like desks of computers and synthesizers and keyboards and like touch pads and all kinds of things. And then uh, he he had like voice modulation stuff, and he would walk around with like a TED Talk microphone in his like trench coat and his little glasses and he would like make live music for his audiences so much so that he still does that he ended up getting a job as the musical director of the ted talk series he was like Ah. the head director for over a decade of music and now he runs this uh electronic music program out of johns hopkins university whoa uh and still does like occasional shows and um odd like happenings kind of like very like avant-garde kind of music things um the golden age of wireless back in 1982 it reached uh number 13 on the billboard charts it's got a lot of like it's kind of like a mishmash of like new wave and electronic dance music um but it was re-released um after the blinded by science ep came out uh blinded by the science is this big old hit in fact, it's so big and old, I don't think we really need to listen to it. I would like to listen to some weird songs. <laughs> Everyone got the song uh, Europa and the Pirate Twins, yes? Yep, yep. And this uh, solidifies right from the get-go uh, Thomas Dolby's interest in things science and space and futuristic. Um, Jeff, quick quiz. Europa is a moon of... Jupiter. Nice, excellent, good, passed. <laughs> Um, Jeff, by the title is uh, with Europa and the Pirate Twins. Is the Pirate Twins also something that we should know from astronomy, or is that some creative twist that we don't understand? I am not familiar with that phrase. Okay, good enough. Andy, what kind of vibes is Thomas Dolby giving you? Good question. Uh, well, he's wearing a, a little brown vest and uh, has some very round glasses. Uh, that I guess also function as sunglasses. Um, kind of looks like a uh, college professor's teaching assistant. I like that. Yeah, he's got. You know, like... I was thinking about the antagonist from the uh, the time machine. Oh, oh, nice. that's good. Yeah. What's fun is on the on the um, liner notes of this album, it says that the first instrument that Thomas Dolby plays is a 
that was a great nowhere to go. I will say while you're finding that, um, he looks a little like Tim Robbins in the Shawshank Redemption. Not the hair, but just <laughs> kind of similar facial structure. It was actually my my wife Allison is a major, you know, musician, music person. She knows all kinds of stuff about music. Um, and tolerates me when I talk about Al. But <laughs> she uh, turned me on to Thomas Dolby. I actually bought the album you referred to earlier. Oh, uh, uh, wireless. Oh, yeah, Golden Age of Wireless. Yeah, so I have that album. Awesome. And uh, I think my favorite part of uh, <clears throat> this is uh, uh, when he says, she blinded me with science. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the instrument that uh, Thomas Dolby plays on the uh, on the album liner notes, vocals, obviously, and then drum programs, piano. The fourth one is wave computer. Uh, he also gets credited for monk voice on track three, <laughs> and electronic percussion and a kalimba. Well, now I gotta know what track three is. I'm not sure because this was reordered after the new one. It could be weightlessness, maybe. In the version that I bought, it's airwaves. Ah, oh, see, there you go. I don't know if it's the original order. Um, the Blinded Me with Science came out in 1983, and while this came out, um, Thomas Dolby also had a side project of even weirder music called Dolby's Cube. And Dolby's Cube was a product that was a lot like session musicians hanging out and making super dancey, almost like techno, a lot of instrumental kind of music, Um, a much less new wave stuff going on. Uh, Some of the guest musicians uh, included George Clinton um, of Funkadelic, and the other half of that band's name is called uh, Parliament. Oh, goodness, that hurt my brain. Uh, a band with two names. Why? Don't know. Um, now, this side project, Dolby's Cube, made almost all of the soundtrack for this hit 1986 sci-fi movie. Gentlemen, quiz time. Mm. What sci-fi movie came out in 1986 about a space life form that comes back down to Earth and is technically the first Marvel film. Oh, yes. Really? Yep. Everyone, we're going to watch the trailer. Yes! For (laughs) Howard the Duck. Oh, my gosh. What do you mean, oh, my gosh, Jeff? Howard the Duck. I just saw uh, the latest Guardians of the Galaxy movie yesterday, and like like the previous two, happy to see that Howard the Duck does make a cameo. Oh, good. Yes. Very brief, but he does get one line. Across the sea of stars lies another world, a world almost exactly like ours. This is where he lives. He's 27 years old, single but searching. Favorite sports, Windsor. Now, I have not seen this film. Is it worth watching? I watched it once all those years ago. It looks just dumb enough to be fun to watch once, but I haven't heard amazing comments about it. I've seen, I think, the first half hour. Interesting. He lands in Cleveland. Listen to me, small visitor. Oh, this guy. Jeffrey yeah. Jones. Purpose, 80s cop guy. Cosmic cost. Here, he's forced to reassess his career goals. That actor's from uh, Back to the Future. To also, explore right? new relationships. Uh, Leah Thompson, yes. Yeah, okay. Uh, was that Tim Robbins? <laughs> Speaking of Tim Robbins. To adjust to a changing lifestyle. Until he discovers just who he really is. I like how this trailer is... Uh, keeping secret that this is a duck. Howard the duck, trapped in a world he never made. They're also not showing his, they never showed his face. Oh, they did. It was a split second where you see his face. I guess I was looking away. It is true. It's got Leah Thompson, Jeffrey Jones, and Tim Robbins as the first three build. Dang. And who presents it? 
George Lucas Presents. Yes. <laughs> wow. Um, so in case you want to listen to it and not have to watch it, uh, just know that Thomas Dolby and his side project Dolby's Cube is responsible for most of the music you'll hear there. Um, in 1984, uh, the sophomore album comes out. It's called The Flat Earth. Uh-oh. This uh, did less traffic in the United States. It peaked at number 35 and has a single on it that everyone is pretty sure is the source material for Weird Al's pastiche. It's a song called Hyperactive. And I think this song is awesome. It was an unexpected uh, uh, treat for myself. I believe it made an appearance in a episode of Breaking Bad. Oh. I think I read that somewhere. Some of the things that are common with this song and Weird Al's original is that it's got similar tempos. Um, it's got some robot vocals at the end of the song. Um, it also has this bass line thing at the beginning. According to the liner notes, uh, someone named Matthew Salt plays something <laughs> called the Thunder Sheet, which is a giant piece of metal that you hit and it sounds like thunder. It's like for like folio artists. Oh, I thought, thought you meant that was a character in this music video. Oh, no. That's <laughs> a liner notes for the album. Got well, they use it in, in, in theater to um, make thunder noises backstage. Oh, ah, it's a big sheet of aluminum. Yeah. Uh, the Rolling Stones review for this album starts off with the line, quote, No one evokes the electronic mysteries of the global village more seductively than Thomas Dolby. Wow. That's a sentence. Uh, currently in the music video, Thomas Dolby is uh, using a Thomas Dolby puppet, and now that puppet is playing trombone. I think this is like a. It started as like a like a therapy session, yeah. Yes. And it's sort of gone very surreal very quickly. Yes, the therapist has a box on its head of photos of different emotions being expressed by said therapist. He's also playing the trombone with his nose. Do we yep. catch that? Okay, good. I love Jeff's face. He's like perplexed and amused. (laughs) He's like, this used to be the mainstream culture. I forgot. It's funny that MTV was kicking off around this year and was like waiting for any and all content to come their way so they could fill their 24 hours with music videos. And this stuff would get popular because they needed stuff to occupy their runtime and I definitely think we've lost something with the loss of the music video culture that MTV started and now it's all reality TV yeah I I mean like I was raised on uh, early MTV with the I mean 90s MTV with the music videos and I think a lot of my uh, potentially writing style or like editing style comes from music videos just like things happening on the beat or or like just a certain rhythm to everything so the fact that that's not happening anymore is really upsetting well yeah music videos are still around it's just not we're not all there's no monoculture of any kind no. so you'll you have to go find it yeah or it becomes like a you know uh ephemeral you know, it, it's around for 24 hours or 48 hours, and then yeah, the, I mean, the memes disappear. All the Vivo pages on YouTube, obviously, but... Exactly. It's really interesting that Al's career has been so long that he's gone through these eras. Because he went through a you know music video era, and then you know he went through the album era, the cassette tape era, the CD era, mm-hmm. and, and then he's, he's kind of like... Uh, if I remember hearing what I heard correctly... He's thinking he's not going to reduce. He's not going to produce studio albums anymore, but only individual songs. Right. Because the market is is not conducive to having complete albums. Yeah. 
So he's just gone with the flow and adapted all the way through, and he's lived through all of these changes. And it's funny that the timing has worked out because he had a 14-album record deal, which was, like, ludicrous, and then it sort of, like, timed out. His last one was released in 2014, and since then, it's been, just become less and less sensible to release a traditional album, and so he's been, like, free to play it by ear and yeah. decide what to do strategically. Um, since then, he's done, like, the the Hamilton polka, and then he's done a bunch of, like, not a bunch, but he's done a handful of, like, original songs for, like, like different shows or... Yeah, different YouTube channels. I think he had, like, a Trump versus Biden song. Sure, yeah. A few yeah, years yeah. ago. He had, like, a... he On one of the Lego Star Wars movies, I mm-hmm. think he, he has a, a new original song. And then... And then with the film that came out last year, he had a new original song. Yeah. So he's like, you know, he's dropping them whenever it makes sense. Right. And his influences reach beyond just his own music, too. That make uh, a lot of people credit him as a source of inspiration, like Randy Rainbow. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Features him as a source of his inspiration to make him do his stuff. Uh, as a side note, when 1986, when that duck, uh, Howard the Duck movie came out, I was looking on the soundtrack list. There's also um, a song on that album uh, called Don't Turn Away that has Stevie Wonder on it. So, like, I don't know. There's a sentence that exists that is true, which is, there's a Marvel movie presented by George Lucas called Howard the Duck where Thomas Dobley and Stevie Wonder are on it. And that's sort of like an odd, uh, which one of these things is not true? The answer is none of the above. Yes, all of them are are facts. <laughs> also, there's randomly a song called uh, uh, Close But No Cigar, which is just coincidental that there's a mm-hmm. Al song called that. Jeff, are you familiar with the Golden Throats series of albums? No. This was like a thing, I think it was like a novelty thing in like the 80s where movie stars would cover um, popular music and uh traditionally like not i don't really know where the joke lies here or if there was one at all and it's just funny in retrospect but there would be like william shatner or leonard nimoy cover like frank sinatra or whatever and it would be like a a collection of these um different actors doing different songs is this separate from like shatner doing rocket man i think golden throats was before Shatner doing stuff like Rocket Man because Shatner did a space themed cover record, okay, uh, which includes "Blinded Me with Science," Natural. and it's actually okay with "Blinded Me with Science" because "Blinded Me with Science" has like a lot of like talk, like almost like B fifty two's like talk singing in it, <laughs> so yeah. he can he can uh, roll with that one. The other ones are slightly more strange. Yes, she packed my bags last night pre flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm gonna be high as a kite by then. But he's been to space now, so we have to honor him. (laughs) We have to honor anyone who has been to space. It's almost like, did we do it for William Shatner, or did we shoot a 90-year-old man into space for the rest of us? <laughs> I th- uh, Honestly, probably the latter. Uh, a couple more fun extra notes. Thomas uh, Dolby appears in a movie called Rockula, uh. which came out in 1990. He plays like a, a goofy side character. Um I'm going to tell you the... uh, Oh, and uh, it also features a person who keeps on coming up in this show, Tony Basil. And um, let me read you the IMDb, not the IMDb synopsis from the official top of the page, but a user-submitted summary. is a a storyline summary written by a user that goes by Shannon. Goes as thus. This is a, uh, a PG-13 comedy-slash-horror-slash-musical, as a preface. <clears throat> Rockula is about a male vampire 
who lost his lady love centuries ago. She was killed by a pirate with a rhinestone peg leg wielding a large ham bone. Our hero, the vampire, did nothing to save her. So he now cursed her. Uh, he is now cursed to watch her be born again in another life and then watch her die, strangely enough, by a pirate with a rhinestone peg leg wielding you-know-what. Now, in 1990, he has, he suspects, his last chance to try and save her instead of watching her get clubbed over and over again down through the years. Oh, and he becomes a rock star in the process. <laughs> yeah, waiting for the moment where it's like, oh, that's why it's called Rockula. Yeah, the tagline for this film is, he's a vampire who hasn't scored in 400 years. Uh. Tonight's the night. So I hope this really uh, ima- like, really solidifies the kind of film that we're talking about. The, our loving uh, Thomas Dolby <laughs> plays a guy named Stanley. And I watched a clip from this film, and I'm not going to share it with you because I don't think it's really worth our time. Can you describe what happens? It was like (laughs) he is like playing this like super into him egocentric actor guy. And it's a bunch of people watching an infomercial about a funeral home and cemetery that he runs that he calls like Death Park, I think. And he's like trying to promote it over the television like it's a fun place to go. Yeah, everyone should go to Death Park. Yeah, it's a funny enough bit, but it just doesn't... It just is not done in a way that is humorous, unfortunately. That's fun to say. Death Park. Yeah, Death Park. Where are you going this weekend, Billy? I'm going to Death Park. Have fun. <laughs> After uh, the his popular musical career sort of fizzled out, and he went, he continued merging the worlds of music and technology, and I'm going to send you a link to one final thing. Um, He maybe made his most lasting contribution to music and popular culture with the following song. (laughs) This is the Nokia 7210 ringtone called Groove. And this is one of many ringtones that Thomas Dolby's company in the 2000s developed. And they were sort of at the forefront of developing ringtones for our cellular devices. Wouldn't wow. You know? the, the first comment on the video is, love when ringtones are just words because you know they're bangers. Just words? What? Like groove? I guess they're like a like a vibe or like an adjective. Yeah. I, I mean, ringtones used to be a, a thing. <laughs> Very much so. When we get to the song Ringtone uh, by Weird Al, much later in our run of shows, uh, I'm going to do a deeper dive. Because I also learned today that there were, like, mobile music awards back in the 2000s. And they, like, had annual awards for, like... Like, like Thomas Dolby won an award for his work in developing ringtones for Nokia. So, wow. <laughs> just shows you where we were in the world. I, it's a bummer. I'm a little bit bummed that custom, like, ringtones were such a... We'll get into it when that show happens. But, like, <laughs> there used to be, like, commercials on TV for buying specific yeah. ringtones. Crazy like frog. A, yeah, for, like, $1.99, you can get, like, 50 cents into club, but, like, an a, like a 16-bit version of it for your very garbage flip phone. I used a, a website where you could like upload a song and then create a ringtone out of like 30 seconds of it. So I would have like uh, personalized ringtones for my parents or my friends or anything like that. And it was just. Apple still treats uh, ringtones as a separate music file category. Yeah. It's, it's a file format they use and you know, they're separately tracked inside your iTunes account. And now I just keep my phone on vibrate all the time and don't, <laughs> it doesn't make any noise at all except the vibration. There's a little dive into the wonderful world of Thomas Dolby, everybody. Andy, the baton is being passed to you, my friend. Okay. Well, we are here to now talk about slime creatures from outer space. It is the second song on side two of Dare to be Stupid. 
Um, uh, Jeff, is it? Do you think it's side two or side B? What's your preference? Yes, that's actually a good question. Um, side, I would okay. This is what I think. I don't know. Side one and two refer to LPs. Mm-hmm. Side A and B refer to forty fives. Oh, oh, right, because you had a one single song per yeah. side. That makes sense. This makes sense to me, everyone. I approve Jeff's message. <laughs> it's like, well, on Wikipedia, it listed it as side two, so I'm just going with that. Um, that's from the department of, I just made it up and it sounds really good. I think I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> I have a degree from that university. If you say something with <laughs> enough confidence, it becomes true. That's right. That's, that's what I teach in my English class. It's all yes. about rhetoric. Wonderful. Um, Slime Creatures from Outer Space lasts a total of 4 minutes and 23 seconds, which makes it the longest song on Dare to be Stupid, beating One More Minute by 19 seconds. Ugh, I was hoping it was by one more minute, but uh, it's oh, not. I didn't even think of that. That would have been amazing. Um, <laughs> that would be every, every song is just like three and a half minutes about. Um, as we've discussed, it is a style parody of Thomas Dolby's Hyperactive, uh, as well as, uh, sci-fi soundtracks from the fifties. Um, and this was something that was very strange to me, uh, on the, uh, Weird Al wiki, it also says it's a style parody of Rock Lobster by the B-52s. And Mm. I don't hear that at all. Yeah, I didn't dive into that one because B-52s have been like reported on twice already with our previous seasons. So I was like, mm-hmm. you know what? I'm going to go on this Thomas Dolby one. But it's like, but, uh, I don't hear any influence of Rock Lobster in Slime Creatures from Outer Space. Maybe the tempo, and that's about it. Well, are there the, like the bounciness. Are there like female backing vocals on Slime Creatures? Uh, Just the robots. Okay, interesting. Yeah, or or the end of the song when there's a, a very, as the song is fading out, you can hear, who are you going to call? Side Creatures! <laughs> An honor to Ghostbusters, basically. Yeah. So, Slime Creatures was recorded as part of the first Dare to be Stupid recording session, which also yielded the title track, Cable TV, and One More Minute. Uh, song features a lot of theremin. Uh, which is reportedly played by Steve J to get that quote cheesy '50s sci-fi soundtrack sound. Nice. Um, Al apparently also got to play the theremin uh, performing the song live, um, which is pretty cool. Uh, he played accordion on the demo, supposedly, but not on the album track. But when playing the song live, he would bring back the accordion sometimes. Got a nice little crappy footage video of such a thing. July 26, 1985 at the Greek Theater in L.A. So the video is missing the first bit of the song. So yeah, the melody and rhythm of the verses are almost the same exactly as Thomas Dolby's Hyperactive. So this is the same concert uh, we saw um, for the I Want a New Duck episode. Right. And I find it just very interesting. I'm like, I want to watch the full concert to see like how many songs does Al actually play keyboard? Because he's playing keyboard here again. I like that Al does what I do sometimes, which is when I'm performing live with my band, I shout most of my songs as opposed to sing them like I do in the studio Uh, because I've either set the song at a register that's just out of my range or the monitors on the stage are very bad and you can't hear yourself and so you (laughs) sing anyway or you shout anyway. Um, This might be a combo of both of those things. But it's slightly more punk because he's got to shout to hit those notes. I have to give a shout out to Al. Because I think uh, I can credit him with literally saving my life. Oh. And it's because of this song. Oh, my goodness. In the late 80s, I got a fellowship to go to Arizona to get my master's degree. I lived in Kentucky. So driving from Kentucky to Arizona is about a three-day job. And it's the longest road trip I ever took. So I drive to Arizona for three summers, I drive out there, stay three months, come back home. Wow! And I and uh, it's a long drive, and you're going through Texas, 
and New Mexico, and it's, it's long, straight, boring roads, right? So I would actually start to drift off and, you know, like fall asleep and caught myself drifting off the road a couple of times. I said, I, just, I can't, I can't take this kind of a risk falling asleep while driving. So I had this album on a cassette tape and I stuck it in the dry in the player and I would belt out those songs along with them and over and over and over and just to keep myself awake. And it kept me alert and awake enough that I never had a problem. But I listened to this album. I wore out that cassette tape in three years. <laughs> you know, it was the thing that made me stay alert enough so that I would feel safe driving down the road. Nice. That's excellent. A lifesaver. Weird Al saves lives. Yep. That's right. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is the scariest thing, falling asleep at the, yeah. on the wheel. I've caught myself drifting off a couple times, too, and it's just like, oh, boy. <laughs> Jeff, when we do when we do every fifteen minutes next week, we'll try to promote Weird Al as a solution for safe driving. Oh, schools are still doing that. Oh yeah, buddy. Oh god. By the time by the time this recording comes out, I will have died and will have come back to life. So yeah. that's just a fun little tidbit for everyone. I was approached when my school was doing that, uh, or like I was about to do that, to be one of the kids that would be pulled out by the grim reaper um and have to go to a hotel and stay overnight and cry with everybody uh i opted not to because i was probably going to do enough crying by myself during that whole day which was true yeah it's gonna be it's why we're not doing a... i like to I just like to watch the helicopter yeah that part's cool i'm not gonna see any cool bits i think i've, I've got the short end of the stick on this one but anyways, yeah, I will be dead. Uh, I will I will report to you uh, next episode about the afterlife and what it is like and what sort of, uh, which pizza chain they order from. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, <laughs> I started to go through like, is there a heavenly named pizza chain? And I, that's going to take too long to think about. <laughs> little, little Caesars because Caesars dead. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I also found uh, this. Oh, it's a little uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, because that's a little Jesus quote from one of the Gospels. I'll think of a better one while you talk. Thanks. Um, I There's no official music video for Slung Creatures from Outer Space, but I did find this weird fan-made video that Al actually links to uh, on the Ask Al uh, part of his website pizza big pie in the sky is that something uh yes pizza pizza pie in the sky okay i'll keep thinking and we don't need to watch the whole thing but the bit i did watch is like okay this this is it's from 15 years ago and i'm pretty sure claymation had a <laughs> much better reputation than this video provides so this person's name is chip ratcliffe which is excellent and probably fake yeah <laughs> I mean, this was definitely edited with i iMovie. Yeah, this is excellent. This screams like 2006 on computer. Yeah, so we got just static, blurry shots of cities with a claymation. Not even a claymation, just a, some kind of stop motion UFO. Well, it's like a bad. It's a bad homemade green screen. Yeah, is what's happening here. And then they took images from Ask Jeeves image search <laughs> results and then blew them up on MS Paint. <laughs> I mean, it says this video was, oh, that makes sense, was posted on YouTube uh, on April 20th, 420, for those not in the know, in 2008. But I'm I'm guessing it was made a long time before that. Props to whoever spent time on this. To Chip, Chip, clearly. Okay, I uh, I cut to the end credits, and the end credits here say clay figures and effects provided by Chip slash Ed Ratcliffe. This is a whole Ratcliffe family here. The background arts provided by Abby Ratcliffe and the internet. 
which is an excellent uh. source. Storyboard by Chip Ratcliffe. Choreographed by Chip Ratcliffe. To view this video at home, please visit YouTube.com. <laughs> not even a link, just visit YouTube. Oh, man, I love that. Well, you know, when there's only three videos on the That's site. true. In 2008, yeah. I mean, yeah, I guess it would have been three at this point. One for every year that it existed. Um, so that's a thing. Now, uh, this I'm very disappointed I could not find because apparently there is a cover of this song. Uh, oh. Two guys named Gary Falcone and Joe Piz- Pizzullo whose names sound familiar. I think we may have talked about them in the Dare to be Stupid episode. They, I think because they have some kind of association with the Transformers movie. Um, um, but they did a cover of the song for the uh, 2000 direct-to-video movie Scooby-Doo and the Alien Invaders. Huh. But I right. could not find it anywhere. On the, on the Scooby-Doo wiki, on the page uh, for this movie, they there is like a link for the song for, for a video for the song, but it just goes to the weird Al version. Ah, so, internet, internet, help us out. We need to find the weird cover version. Yes. It's up to you. Yes. Anyone can find it. Please, uh, let us know. Uh, and last, uh, but certainly not least, uh, from the ask Al page on the website, um, someone asked if any of the songs are based on true stories and Al's answer was just line creatures from outer space. So we have that to think about (laughs) based on a true story. That's what I got for slime creatures. Well, I actually have a story for you about that kind of, it's kind of a long version that kind of comes at this from uh, behind, and it it ends with slime creatures, you might say. So uh, the the story I have is about why this topic, the slime creatures invading the earth and you know being more powerful than us and knocking everything down and we're helpless against them. Where did this this uh, meme come from? You know, and um, there's actually uh, you can trace it, you can find it, the exact source that led to all those 1950s B-movies that this song is based on. And um, I guess I'll tell you that story now. So um, it started with uh, an Italian astronomer. His name was Giovanni Schiaparelli. And he had a pretty good telescope. And he liked, uh, among other targets he looked at, was Mars. So. Uh, his telescope enabled to see a disk. Mars is the only planet that we can see the dirt of. Okay. Because all the other planets are either too small or covered with clouds like Venus and Jupiter. Yeah. But Mars, you can actually see the dirt. You can see the surface of it. And I remember spending a summer in the 80s. I had access to a pretty big telescope. And I spent the summer looking at Mars as it came close to the Earth and a nearby close approach. And you could see the polar caps shrink. I could watch the planet rotate. So I'd stay up all night and watch it and would turn. You could see it rotate, uh, you know, like that. Go away, come back an hour later, and it's different, you know. Um, The other thing that you could see is uh, even though I was well aware of the fact that the Martian canals are an optical illusion and they don't really exist because our space probes don't see them when we went there, I saw lines connecting tiny surface features on the surface, and I experienced the optical illusion that Schiaparelli did. And a big telescope, even a pretty big one, Mars looks about the size of a pencil eraser held at an arm's length. And tiny surface features on it are barely visible. And you have to wait for the atmosphere to swimmy and the heat's rising and stuff. And every now and then it'll just snap into like sharp focus for like a split second. And you have to memorize what you saw and quickly draw it. At least that's what he had to do back in the 1800s. So he drew a map of the surface of Mars that drew these lines that are apparently an optical illusion when you see small markings and they're indistinct. Your brain tries to organize the information and it connects them with lines to help remember them. So it's a, rep- it's a reproducible optical illusion that people suffer. So he drew the lines and, and uh, he published his results in a magazine. And the lines he drew were kind of curvy and wavy. And he described them in Italian as canali, which in Italian means a channel or a riverbed. Because the assumption back in those days was as the polar caps shrank, 
they were melting and like on the earth they melt it makes water so Schiaparelli postulated that these lines he saw were rivers and the water was draining out of the polar caps and going down the river so he describes this in a magazine article and drew pictures of the things he saw and published it then uh, uh that was like in the late 1800s in the early uh, late 1800s a little bit later early 1900s an american astronomer named percival lowell uh, read this article, but didn't translate it directly from Italian, just looked at the pictures and read the captions. And he saw the word canali and thought it meant canals, which are not natural, they're artificial, they have to be built. Mm. And he saw the same thing that I saw and Scaparelli saw. I saw the polar caps shrinking. Mars doesn't have much weather. It doesn't have clouds, it never rains on Mars and no thunder clouds and no hurricanes. There's dust storms and there's a faint wisp of a cloud once in a while. Now we know there's frost, but you can't see that from a telescope. So anyway, Lowell thinks that these are canals and therefore his conclusion is that they were built by Martians because their planet is so dry, they're desperately searching for water. So they're pumping the water from the polar caps in the summertime when it melts down to the cities, which are the intersections of these lines. They form little nodules, which are actually the only things that are real here. The little, you know, there's some evidence that, that, that these early observers saw volcanoes on Mars and canyons on Mars and misinterpreted what they were seeing. Um, uh, and in at least a couple of cases, I can identify surface features that I know I saw that were part of these same drawings that they made. So they thought the Martians are pumping the water to the cities because they're so desperate for water. There's not much water there. And so uh, he wrote this up as a as a you know an attempt at a scientific theory. There are Martians. I, I've seen evidence. Not every scientist bought into this. Some did. Most didn't because he thought his evidence was not strong enough to make such a bold claim. But nevertheless, it was a popular book. He published the book. Other people read it, among which was H.G. Wells. So H.G. Wells reads this book that there are probably Martians and they really would like to have some water. And then he comes up with the idea to write the War of the Worlds, where the Martians are looking at Earth through their telescopes and seeing that we're basically a water planet. Boy, they must be jealous of us. They must want our water. So he writes this novel where the Martians come to Earth and uh, they want our water. Now, another popular theory in the early days of astronomy back then was that Mars is an older world and it's dried up. Earth is a living lush green world and Venus is younger. So the closer you get to the sun, the younger the world is. You can't see the surface of Venus. So people made up stuff. If it's cloudy, it must be foggy. It must be steamy. It must be hot. It's like a jungle. So maybe Venus has dinosaurs and Earth is middle-aged, and Mars is old. If Mars is older than us, then they're more sophisticated, they're more advanced than we are. So uh, Lowell and H.G. Wells presumed, okay, if they did come here, they'd be more advanced than us, and we wouldn't be able to stop them. They could take our water, and we would fight them, and we would lose. So that's where the, the War of the Worlds came from, and of course that became the origin of the, the movie with George Powell. And then every other movie that was made in the 1950s, the aliens are always coming here to take our stuff, they're more advanced than we are, and we're the underdog fighting a battle to stop them. So think about how many movies you've seen where the aliens are coming here to take our stuff, like Independence yeah. Day, Battle L.A. In fact, in Battle L.A., they had a scene, and you know how they always have the news reports running in the background in these movies? Yeah. So in the news reports in the background, you can see the aliens are they put a big pipe down in the ocean. They're sucking up the water. Ah. They, you know, now, you can go to Saturn's rings and melt the ice. But it's going to be a lot easier to get your water than to come to Earth and fight the angry monkey people for your water. <laughs> but all of these, like uh, in the TV miniseries V that they did and then redid, yeah. the aliens are here to take our water. And they're, you know, they're here to take our stuff. And Mars attacks. They're here to take our stuff. And we can't fight them. They're more powerful than us. So this, mo this song is just, you know, tying right into that meme. It's, it inherits all of these ideas that are in the song. Are direct descendants of those B movies, which are based on War of the Worlds, which is based on a book by H.G. Wells, which is based on a book by Percival Lowell, which is based on a magazine article that was misread and mistranslated by Lowell that was written by Schiaparelli. And, and it's like you can just trace it with your finger right down through history. It's all their fault. Yeah. Lowell's in particular, I blame him, um, that we have all these alien invasion movies, and the theme is consistently that they want our water over and over and over again. Interesting. So, Except for signs where they are allergic to water. For some reason, all of a sudden, that, yeah, yeah. that's the twist. The twist, so, yeah. <laughs> um, so that's my story. That's like awesome. when, when you invited me, I said, oh, yeah, I got to tell them about the Lowell story because that's where all these stories come from. I wonder how much of the um, the 1950s-ness of it too was like 
was like uh, gasoline for the for the Red Scare fire of like, oh, they're here, they're they're. I mean, coming to take body you, snatchers. Get you. Obviously, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah. It's all a metaphor for the, yeah. the Red Scare. I like just <laughs> the inherent narcissism of the human race. With the thing you were saying about like they can just go to Saturn and and defrost the rings and that, but it's like no, they got they're gonna come over <laughs> here and not fight us because we're for our water. we're the important people because we're right because they're gonna go the hard way. Um, that's that's really. They can travel through interplanetary space, but they can't melt water. They can't melt ice to make water. They gotta that's suck it through a giant straw. Yeah. Yeah. Is, so under that logic too, the, so Mercury is the newest planet. It's a baby. Yeah, the baby. Planet. It's a little baby planet, and then like Neptune is like the old, the old grizzled planet. Oh well, the people who proposed this, it only applied to those three: Venus, Earth, and Mars. Okay. They never extended it beyond that. Sure. Okay. But gotcha. you know, I mean, we really didn't until the 1960s. Nobody really knew what was under the clouds of Venus. So people just made up stuff. Maybe it's dinosaurs. Maybe it's a desert. Maybe it's an ocean planet. And the steam of the heat is making it. And eventually we're able to detect what the atmosphere was made of. And then the Russians actually landed a probe under the clouds and did direct measurements of the surface. And it's like 800 degrees with sulfuric acid yeah. rain. And, you oh, know, goodness. so we were all wrong. So Venus de Milo's arms just melted off. Melted off. Yeah, okay. good vacation spot. That's so exciting. The what was the most recent uh, star party that you had? What were you able to go see? Um, well, I've been doing this thing since the pandemic, and I'm going to do it again actually tomorrow. Where um, I have this new telescope that has uh, a built-in camera and an, an internet connection, so I can sit uh, and uh, uh, unlike normal normal telescope doesn't have an eyepiece, it just has a a fake video camera with an eyepiece like hole in it on the side and you don't usually use that just it's just for show you operate it with your your tablet or your phone and the camera then transmits the picture to your phone and that's where you see the image so there um, it's completely automated so it just looks at the sky for a minute and then figures out of all the tens of thousands of stars in its database you must be looking at this particular pattern then it figures out what it's looking at, knows what time it is, has a GPS, knows where it is. And then from that point on, you just pick a target and it automatically turns to it. So I can, uh, in moments, pick out targets automatically and take photos in a process that would normally take me hours or days. I can do in a few minutes. So I, I log in on my pad to a Zoom session like this, and I just share the screen, the control screen for the telescope. Look, I'm taking a picture of a galaxy right now in front of you. And we look at galaxies and we look at nebulas and we can look at a couple of planets. Um, you can track asteroids with it. There's all kinds of stuff. Um, I mean, the big telescopes that amateurs buy that have a lot of hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment obviously can be better. This is an expensive telescope, but it's completely automated. And I think that's going to be the future of amateur astronomy. You're going to see more and more telescopes that are, um, it's focused on the observation end of it and not with wrestling with with the equipment. Um, so anyway, um, I'm gonna do another one tomorrow for my students. And uh, it works pretty well. Um, then I'm also gonna still do a, a live one later in the month. So they, they come to the school and look through an actual physical telescope and I can point with my laser pointer and say, look at this right here, kids. And uh, there's value in that, that, that you can't capture over the web. But I like to do the virtual ones because not every kid can have transportation to come to the school. So if they are stuck at home and can't get out, then they can at least participate in that way. And then the live one is for people who can come out and, and you can see a little, you, know, you don't see the same kind of stuff, but you, you can appreciate different things when you're looking at it with your own two eyes. Cool. That's so exciting. I'm glad we got you in our folds for a while. You know, if you know somebody owns a boat, there's all kinds of different boats, speed boats, fishing boats, right? Yeah. Uh, House boats. So people with telescopes are like people with boats. They, they want to buy a bigger one, and they get a bigger one, and then they get a bigger one, and there's different purposes. So um, they're like specialized purposes for some telescopes. But most of the time, with your ordinary you know, class work that we do, we just use the digital telescope to work fast. Yeah. And we use the other ones once in a while. Cool. Awesome. 
Well, speaking of fast, Jeff, we have exactly one last bit for our show. What a segue. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Jeff, science, I hear kids say this all the time. I like math and science better, Mr. Durier, because there's a right an answer and there's a wrong answer. And you can be right or wrong. There's none of this debate business. There's none of this like goofy metaphor and symbolism business. So it's hard to compare two pieces of art and decide which one is better or which one is worse. Did Thomas Dolby make the better song or did Weird Al make the better song? And at what point are we uh, making objective observation and what point is our bias trying to lead us to an emotional decision? So we've solved the puzzle. In season one, Jeff, we found a random website called GetSongBPM.com, which takes any song and and boils it down to its essentials, five uh, measurable qualities. What we're going to do is we're going to compare each song. There's five rounds, one per each quality that apparently music has. You're going to be responsible for sharing us the uh, the results of the Thomas Dolby song, Hyperactive. Andy's going to be responsible every round, giving us the results for Weird Al's Slime Creatures from Outer Space. And whichever, Jeff, this is important, whichever parameter has the larger number wins because bigger numbers are better than smaller numbers. <laughs> we have Thomas Dolby's Hyperactive versus Weird Al Yankovic's Slime Creatures from Outer Space. Jeff, what is the tempo of Thomas Dolby's hyperactive. 105 beats per minute. All right. Now, if Weird Al's song is faster, it's better, and therefore wins the round. (laughs) Andy, what's the tempo of Slime Creatures from Outer Space? 108 beats (gasps) per minute. All right. <laughs> Round one goes to Weird Al. Here we go. Round two. Jeff, what is the name of the quality measured for round two? Danceability. Mm, all yeah. right. We take the danceability-ness of a song, and we've quantified it on a scale from one to 100. Totally not a subjective thing. It's not. It's on a number line. Jeff, what is the result? 69. Ooh, the funniest number. Okay. Uh, Weird Al? Slime Creatures from Outer Space has a danceability of 71. Whoa! So it's beaten these two categories by very slim margin. Nice. It's just better enough. Jeff, round three. What are we measuring? Energy. Nice. Now, in physics class, how would you measure energy? (laughs) There are two kinds. There's the energy of movement. So the faster it moves and the bigger it is, the more energy it has. And there's the energy based on the position. So the higher up in the air it is, Mm. the more energy it would have. Uh, It store energy in batteries and energy in food and things like that. So I wonder which energy this is. (laughs) This has got to be one of those two, I'm sure. Um, The score for uh, Thomas Dolby is... 93. Night. And what what units would we be using for energy? Is this, is this joules or am I mixing this up with something? Joules a unit of energy. So yeah. All right, great. We're going to go with yeah. joules today. That, that at... little flame, that's the universal sign for joules. Or maybe BTUs. <laughs> okay. Um, Andy, can you beat 93 energy? Yep, 96. Oh my goodness! Oh, he's already won. He's already won. Now this might be the first clean sweep. Um, we almost had it in uh, episode one with Madonna, but uh, Madonna came back at the end here. So let's see how we do. This one might be rough here. Um, the most electronic song that ever was <laughs> is now measured by acousticness. Jeff, what's the acousticness for Thomas Dolby's music? Nine. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> nine. Andy, can you beat nine? A song that has a theremin in it? Well, I think that 
little homage to the price is right was a little premature because the acousticness here is five it is not a clean oh! sweep oh my goodness <laughs> what a one to lose the the perfect yeah, score on. i would not have guessed that. single digits all right jeff what's the last and maybe best quality of any song liveness nice now what do you think that means from a, a scientist's perspective. How much does it appear to be a live performance? Oh, that is true. Now, I've dug, and I think the the this website's definition is, on a scale of 0% sure and 100% sure, how sure is this robot that the song is a live performance? So, again, <laughs> bigger number is better. <laughs> and movie studios want AI to write stories. That's right. Yeah, writer strike right, says right. Uh, we're all gonna be fine. Um, Jeff, what's the liveness of Thomas Dolby's Hyperactive? Twenty-one. Lucky number twenty-one. Or is it? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what did Weird Al get? Thirty-two. Wow, a four, four out of out five, five victory. That's not bad at all. Heck, not bad at all. It looks sorry, Thomas. It looks like Weird Al made a better song, and we checked with a scientist. Yes. <laughs> this will be published in something. Just remember to cite your references. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had a dream. I I think I it was like related to like because uh, I hadn't done my research on, on this song yet, I had a dream where I had a paper too, and I did not cite my research, and I started to freak out. I nice. I haven't had to worry about anything like that for probably 20 or 15 years, so that was weird. You're missing out. It's a delightful world to continue to be. I'm sure. My kids are handing me all kinds of AI-written stuff, and it's real fascinating. Why? The future is bright, everyone. Jeff, uh, speaking about the future, this episode is going to come out in June of some time. Uh, is there anything that you do in the public sphere that if people are interested in your uh, career or life perspective, is there a thing that you're doing out there that you would recommend people go do, see, a thing that you were inspired by that people should go watch, anything that you'd like? Uh, well, I draw a comic strip. Uh, it's called... Uh, Cosmo and Astro get schooled. Yeah. And it's about two aliens who somehow wind up being teachers on Earth, um, sort of as a punishment. <laughs> this is their, they get assigned the crappiest job, and that's teaching here on Earth. It was, it was War of the so, Worlds, the Martians lost. And that's right. Punishment. <laughs> they were assigned public service duties. Yeah. So uh, um, basically every weird thing that happens to me as a teacher becomes a comic strip. Nice. So when my level of frustration reaches a certain point, I turn it into a comic strip to let it go. You know, that's such a healthy so. avenue. <laughs> um, and they're, and uh, they're delightful because the characters are are permanently affixed to the whiteboard in the copy room. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> they're a delight to see. So, yeah, I have fun with that. Where do people get a look at this? Um, you can Google the phrase Cosmo and Astro, and it'll probably come up. But uh, its official website is cosmoandastro.blogspot.com. And I usually post first on Facebook, and eventually I put it on my little blog. But um, uh, I've done about 300 comics over the years. Nice. Um, back in the day when I was in college, I wrote... Uh, my friend uh, and I, we went to a school that had a 414 system. So you went uh, four, four months in fall, one month in, in January, four months in spring. Gentle. During the one month, you do, you know, independent studies and special projects. So we wrote a play, and it was the musical adventures of Cosmo and Astro. <laughs> we turned it into a musical, and uh, my friend, who is a musician, wrote all the songs, and I wrote the words, and it was actually performed at our college. That's and then after that, it's just been a comic strip. That's an excellent backstory. I had no idea. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Um, it was really interesting from an author's point of view because uh, I was just sitting in the audience watching the director interpret what I wrote, and he added bits mm -hmm. to it, and you know he cut some stuff out, and this doesn't work, but 
you know, it was one of the professors at the college who was the director. Uh-huh. And then they had the musical director who was doing the same thing with the music. And they had the live band sitting in the corner playing the songs. And that's nice. Uh, you know, it was really fun uh, to go through all of that and see how it turned out yeah. and see people perform it. Cosmo and Astro, everybody. Uh, yep. Jeff, thank you so much for spending a school night with us. And uh, Thanks for inviting me. It's good yeah. to know there's... There's more of us out there. There's more of us out there. Um, Andy, speaking of more, next week, what yes. on earth are we covering? Oh, what about what about Jesus pieces? You know how like it's a piece of pizza and a Jesus oh. piece is a gold chain with a cross on it? Does that work? You know that bit from 45 minutes ago? Does that work? I totally forgot what it was. Pizza chains in heaven. Yeah, that was my assignment, and I've been thinking about it. And I came up with Jesus pieces. How do you like it? <laughs> I started to think like, wait, didn't it have to do with aliens? What is what? Um, <laughs> wow, you uh, brought it right back, didn't he? <laughs> uh, yes, that one. That one works. Thank you. Good. Jesus. I just I need some affirmation. Nice closure. Thank you. Um, Next week, we are going to be talking about Girls Just Want to Have Lunch. Oh, delightful. It'll be such a good... There's a, I've got a special concoction coming up. It's, it might be, knock on wood, our first uh, official song episode with two co-hosts. Um, we will see oh. if we can collect the right people in the right places. Anyways, that's a little teaser. Um, if, if it doesn't happen, then what? Then, what a, then I'll just cut this bit out. Easy. What a troll. Um, Jeff, thanks for coming by. We do have to end our yeah. show. Um, we have a, our go-to catchphrase to end every episode, and it goes a little something like this. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Perfect. <laughs>